Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 122nd episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is Keep the Rocket in the Air. I'm joined by James Herman. He is the author of Future Demand, Why Building Your Brand Among Tomorrow's Customers is the Key to Startup Success. The publisher is previously unavailable. James is the founding partner of the innovation studio, previously unavailable. He's also the co-founder and director of Tracksuit, a brand health tracking company. James has been designated as the world's number one ad agency planning director. He's also the author of a previous book, The Case for Creativity, The Link Between Innovative Marketing and Commercial Success. Welcome to the show, James. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So uh, let's plunge right in. Uh, brief overview of the book. What's what's this all about? Yeah. So this is a book that uh, that I wrote for primarily for startup founders and and leaders of startup companies, uh, just helping them, I guess, think about the importance of the long term when it comes to building their brand and their business. You know, startups are very focused on short-term growth for obvious reasons, but the journey from uh, from investment into a startup through to some kind of exit event, an IPO or, a, or an exit to another company is usually about nine or 10 years. And so the book's really about um, why startups should be thinking about you know, years three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, rather than just the year that they're in and orient their marketing around building towards long-term success, not just uh, sort of focusing on how they get sales in the door today. So it's really kind of brings all of the 
the evidence that we've got from the marketing science and, and effectiveness research communities brings all that evidence to bear on uh, smaller, younger companies, how they can use marketing to to grow sustainably over the long term. Sure, and fair enough. So one of the really important concepts in the book is this equation of 60-40. Can you enlighten listeners as to what that means and what's its importance to a business profitability, short-term, long-term especially? Yeah, so, yeah, that's right. The, the, the um, great researchers, Les Burnett and Peter Field, working with the uh, the data from the UK's Institute of Practitioners and Advertising, um, a piece of analysis, a piece of analysis that they did, they they looked across um, many hundreds of case studies at the mix of short term and long term marketing activity in uh, in in all of those different brands, and they found that the optimal mix was to spend about forty percent of your kind of money and resource on short-term activation, so trying to get customers to buy today, and 60% on longer-term brand building. Uh, And by that, I mean activity, which is intended to create a sense of kind of familiarity and emotional positivity uh, among the group of uh, customers who perhaps aren't ready to buy today, but will come into the category at some point. And, uh, and so that 60-40 split really kind of says, you know, we should, we should be spending the majority of our marketing money on doing that longer-term brand building job and the minority doing that short-term job. And the reason for that, it really comes down to the, uh, the, the simple fact that most, most people who are going to buy from your company are not in the market and ready to buy today. Right. So uh, so if you think about, you know, really any category, there's going to be a small group of consumers who are ready to buy the product today. They're in the market. They're shopping around. It's going to be a much, much bigger group of people who aren't ready to buy today, but will be at some point in future. And really, our job as brand building marketers is to make sure that when those people do come into the category, they lean towards us, they gravitate towards us. And people do that when they're familiar with us before they enter the category and they've got some kind of positive emotional feeling towards us so if we can if we can make them feel that way before they're ready to buy then when they come into the market they'll gravitate towards us we'll stand out to them and be more kind of appealing to them and so that's really about what the principle of future demand is it's a it's a future demand means creating demand in the future as opposed to just converting the demand that is uh, available to you today. And those are really quite different um, different marketing jobs, but they both need to happen. And going back to Les and Peter's 60-40 rule, um, they need to happen at that kind of ratio. Um, so in other words, you know, the really answer I think I'm hearing is the importance of 60-40 to a business profitability is huge. I mean, you're talking about larger potential audience, gravitating, uh, building emotional momentum so that you can, you know, be in the consideration set and, and probably prevail uh, if this is done well, all, all of that, correct? Yeah, that's right. And yeah, the profitability point is a really important one. So, um, so, so again, what all of the data shows is that companies with 
strong brands, i.e. brands that are very familiar and have some sort of emotional connection with consumers, those brands are able to charge more money uh, than their competitors. So they're able to put their prices up without losing volume of of customers. Uh, They're able to justify those higher prices over the long term. And, you know, if you can raise prices by 1%, it's been shown you know, that usually trickles down to a profit increase of about 8%. So it's hugely beneficial to marketers to be able to raise prices or justify higher prices um, for the profitability of businesses. And businesses with uh, very weak brands, so brands that aren't very familiar, don't have much of an emotional connection, those companies tend not to be able to raise prices or justify higher prices. So so when we're doing that brand building work and that, that, that generation of future demand, one of the things that we're also doing is improving our ability to to justify higher prices and therefore make greater margins and therefore be more profitable and therefore be more sustainable because it's much easier to be sustainable when we're working off good margins than when we're just tracking along kind of barely making a crust at the end of the year. Sure. And and to, and to clarify or confirm, did I hear 80 or 8? Eight, eight. Sorry, yeah. Okay, eight. yeah. So ten. No, well, no, no. Eight, eight is very attractive. I just I wanted to make sure I heard you <laughs> properly, so that uh, everyone's cute. And I, I, by the way, really respect the IPA. I can't remember whether it was Field or Benet that I met with some years ago, but I was really impressed with what they've pulled together. So uh, maybe a small follow-on question, just to stay with the sixty forty future and demand thing here for a moment, very explicitly. Um, I imagine because of the IPA's influence, uh, well-earned, that maybe 60-40 is uh, a bit more discussed in the UK than it might be in the US to date. Is that uh, a true summation or what, what are you finding? Yeah, I think that's certainly true. I think the, the work that Liz and Peter have done is um, uh, very uh, very UK-centric. Even though they are working with a data set that includes lots of international case studies, it's still quite UK-centric, and, and certainly its publisher is very UK-centric. And so so there is a sort of UK-centricity to it, but, um, but certainly the principles that they've uncovered uh, are, are the same the world over. So it's, um, it's, it's, it's perfectly reasonable to kind of take what they're – they've discovered with their data and apply it to U.S. companies. Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, we're talking about neurobiology and how the human psyche is wired, how we build preferences, uh, behavioral economics. All of this, I think, would feed nicely into what the IPA is perhaps focused on more in a U.K. sort of setting. So if we move to to brand, um, you know, some people find the whole notion of a company's brand a bit amorphous. Uh, and I imagine you can help us <laughs> with this a bit. What would you? How would you define a company's brand? Let's maybe start there first. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the way that I define it as a brand is a is a really simple idea that's at the heart of a company, informing every decision that that company makes, and also informing its its marketing and the way it presents itself to the world. But the point that you make is a is a really good one. That that um, that brand, the idea of brand, uh, it's it's sort of. Uh, you know, uh, I, I tend to say that marketing has not done a very good job of marketing marketing and brand does not have a very good <laughs> and brand does not have a very good brand. Um, and 
a lot of the reason for this, I think, is that in marketing, we talk about concepts like brand. Uh, we hold them up as being really, really important. But when you ask any marketer to, to define what a brand is, they often stumble and struggle with that, um, that question. And I think um, this is something that we're guilty of in marketing. You know, frequently, we talk about the importance of insights and how critical it is that we have good insights. Again, if you ask any marketer to define for you what an insight is, they'll really struggle to answer that question in a simple and lucid way. Um, creativity is another one. We all think we all know that creativity is important. When you ask someone to define what creativity is, they really struggle to do that. And so I think in marketing, we're really guilty of having these, these notions, these concepts that that we say are really important, but then we struggle to define. And if you're someone who works in another area of business, if you work in operations or finance or sales or any of those sorts of areas, it you know you can't um, uh, really be blamed for for being a little bit kind of bemused and befuddled by marketers that that hold up these things as very important but struggle to define what they are so i think that's why you know marketing hasn't done a very good job of marketing and brand doesn't have a very good brand because uh, because you know we 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 are not clear enough within our own community uh, on what these concepts are and what they mean and what use they are and what their commercial value is and all of those sorts of things so i think that's it's an area that we really need to improve. Well, I've been smiling as you you gave that answer, and I, I respect and and uh, enjoy your, your candidness. It makes me think of a Dilbert cartoon, one of my favorites, where they say, "Welcome to marketing," and there's a big banner overhead that says, two drinks minimum." Yeah, and uh, <laughs> I, I think there at times is some uh, you know, concern about how how actionable and practical and so forth it might might happen to be. Um, so I, I love your definition, by the way. If we're talking about actionable levers or components, once we move with that definition forward, I mean, I guess I can start to think about things like projected brand personality, values, motivations. W what would you see as the kind of the distinct assets that you start to contemplate when you think about brand and putting brand into action or or informing a brand? And, and I'm aware that a lot of brands almost the best strokes of luck are indeed strokes of luck seemingly uh, in how a brand might come together. But um, be that as it may, uh, what might you say? Yeah. I mean, yeah, in terms of a, a, a sort of putting a brand into action, I think there's, there's just so many different ways you can do that if you actually do accept that brand is, is a simple idea at the heart of a company that informs everything it does. Um, and sometimes that's externalization in the form of communications, which is about sort of communicating values or giving people a sense of your personality or whatnot. Um, I think where that really falls down is when it's just simply a shiny wrapping paper around a company that doesn't bear much um, relationship with what actually happens inside the company so i kind ah, of good I, point yeah. i think that i think the best companies are the ones that the the externalization of their brand is is simply kind of uh, a, a way of communicating what what is really going on at the heart of that company um and and really sort of um communicates the actions rather than just resting on words one of my favorite quotes of all time is from um, uh, from Maya and probably everyone's favorite 16th century French Roman Catholic friar, St. Francis of Assisi, who said, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. 
and <laughs> and and that's that great. and that is a great kind of I mean what he's saying what he's pointing out which is absolutely true is that our actions speak a lot louder than our words so if you look at a company like Patagonia right Patagonia is a really great brand um, they have very high familiarity lots of people know who who Patagonia are um, lots of people are very emotionally connected to Patagonia feel a deep connection with them because of their positioning around saving our home planet and doing things that are environmentally um, right. And, uh, and, and they've done that for years. You know, they haven't just gone out and made ads that says we care about the environment like every other company in the world. They've actually done things which are really, really interesting and, and have actually made what I call symbolic sacrifices, uh, which are um, uh, times when a company actually sacrifices something in the short term for their beliefs to show that their beliefs are actually truly their beliefs and not just a bunch of marketing rubbish. And so Patagonia, you know, one of the things they did years ago was they, they, um, they, ran, a, they ran an ad that said, don't buy this jacket. And they were encouraging people rather than, you know, buying a Patagonia um, piece of clothing and then sort of wearing it out, throwing it away and um, coming and buying another one you know, we'll sell you a jacket and anytime you need that jacket repaired, we'll repair it. So just bring it back and we'll kind of stitch it back up and make it new again. And then you can go on wearing that because it's much better for the planet that we reuse and recycle things than it is that we just, you know, throw stuff away in our consumerist culture, which is leading to all sorts of issues. And so so for a long time, they've been doing those things which are sort of sacrificial. You know, they, they, they've said in that case, we're happy to sacrifice some sales to build a stronger relationship with our environment, a stronger relationship with our customers, um, and prove that we mean what we say. And then more recently, obviously, when the founder uh, gave the company away effectively to a bunch of um, uh, environmental causes and and donated all future profits of the company to those environmental causes, that was another you know enormous symbolic sacrifice of saying, you know, I'm really serious about this company doing the right thing and uh, and and really working to save our home planet and that's why i've done this and so so i think that's you know patagonia are probably the most um you, you know probably the most intense example of of a company really having a strong idea at its heart and and decision making around that but you know other companies like uh allbirds are another company that i like a lot who have, who have really oriented themselves around their core idea of making better things in a more sustainable way uh and you know nike have for a long time you know done a lot of things which put their kind of money where their mouth is like the colin copernic um piece from a few years ago uh and so it's those i i tend to think that the best brands are, are, are built when there's a real clarity and a real connection between what the company really does and what it says it does. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sure. Well, I had Nike's creative director on the program uh, a few months ago, and I just watched uh, Kaepernick in America, a documentary at a film festival here uh, this past weekend. And certainly the Patagonia example stands out. And uh, you being a New Zealander with your the wonderful beauty of your country, it, it uh, makes plenty of sense why you would revere a company that respects and uh, looks out for the environment. Um, so we had some terms earlier about branding and so forth. I wanted to throw another one. A good friend of mine worked in major ad agencies in New York and L.A. He said, well, he said, here's my definition of creativity in a business context, particularly an ad agency. He said, to me, it's are you creating the emotions in your target audience that are conducive to making the sale? So it was around the creating of the emotional resonance. So in your book, and I don't often get this chance because your book is truly honoring and exploring the importance of emotions, you've got various emotional categories that you bring up, belonging and reassurance and enjoyment. And I I was hoping you might, uh, we don't have a lot of time, but I wanted you to delve in a few of these if you, you might. I don't know if you think of them in terms of a color wheel and some are natural uh, companions or opposites from one another. But if you can tell me a bit about how you constructed those emotional categories, what's in them, what really maybe stands out for you, I'd, I'd welcome that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, going back to the start of of that piece, I mean, one thing that we've uh, we've you know we, we've sort of accepted as a marketing community for quite some time is that is that creating an emotional connection is important. Um, brands which are emotionally, which people feel emotionally close to, uh, are much more powerful than uh, than brands that people feel no sense of emotional closeness to and one of the most you know one of my favorite findings from the ipa work that we've been talking about was that uh, if you feel emotionally close to a company you're likely to conclude for yourself that their products are are of a higher quality and are superior without those facts needing to be presented to you. And this is kind of the wonderful trick of, of great branding is that we make people feel a certain way that allows them to conclude rationally that we're better without need, us needing to actually be better or to you know spend lots of money trying to convince people and persuade people that we are. Um, yeah, so, and, and in that way, they basically sell themselves based yeah. on, on, on the, the trust in, in what's, what they're feeling. Yeah. Totally, totally. I mean, people's emotional connection to Apple is such that they will, you know, they will, uh, as Samsung and other competitors bring out rationally superior products sooner than Apple, uh, Apple users will just wait and pay more for a often rationally inferior Apple product on the basis of the, the connection that they feel with that company. And so that's sort of a really a, a really good example. But going back to the emotional spectrum, I mean, what where that was born from was saying, well, you know, we know we need to create an emotional connection, but what kind of emotional connection? 
specifically are we trying to create? Because the, the you know, it, uh, the, the human emotional spectrum is extremely broad. You know, there are, there are so many different emotions that we are capable of feeling. Um, depressingly, about two thirds of them are negative emotions uh, and one third of them are positive emotions. And normally with a brand, we want to connect on the basis of some kind of positive emotion. And so what, what I did looking at that kind of, um, I guess, the, the science and the, um, the, the work that's been done around um, studying and identifying that range, that gamut of human emotions, uh, really looking at the positive ones, um, turning those into kind of nine broad categories of emotion uh, and, and then comparing those to brands and, and how brands kind of connect. And, and so, as you're saying, one of those groupings is about belonging. It's about creating feelings of kind of inclusion and acceptance and value and respect. Um, uh, and, and so if you think about a brand like Dove, for example, the campaign for real beauty, that, that's really trying to make women feel accepted, respected, valued. Uh, and so their, their brand is really around belonging. As is a brand like Airbnb, their, their whole tagline is belong anywhere. You know, again, they're, they're wanting to um, stimulate emotions around feeling included and accepted. Uh, and and so on through these kind of nine categories. So if you if you think of a, a brand like Volvo, their safety positioning that's all about around making us feel a sense of reassurance in um, in in their product. Um, if you look at a brand like Nike, it's all about motivation. It's about making us feel kind of ambitious and courageous. If you think about uh, Coca-Cola, it's all about making us feel happy. Um, if you think about a brand like Allbirds, it's all about making us feel optimistic that the future can be better. So all of these brands, they tend to really try and uh, activate a specific kind of emotion in us. And they do that over the long term, kind of again and again and again and again through everything that they put out into the world. And so we developed the spectrum really to kind of enable marketers or, or business leaders to say, what is the emotion we want people to feel when they interact with our brand? Whether that's thinking about our brand, you know, put, using our product, coming into to contact with our marketing, what specifically is the emotion that we want people to feel? And once we've got that specificity, it becomes really it becomes so much easier to think about, well, what should our personality be and what should our messages be? Once we know the emotion that we're trying to stimulate in people, it actually becomes quite easy to uh, to figure out kind of how to do that. It's it's quite it's quite a logical step from there. But we very rarely stop or you know stop to think or start thinking about what is that specific emotion that we want to engage in people. Oh, no, I completely agree. I, I would say often in business, we're at the risk of being emotionally illiterate and, uh, don't, you know, draw a bit of a blank slate when we're trying to look at those things. Or I can even remember, quite honestly, meeting with an ad agency in, in London, and I said, they said, well, we're really trying to explore emotions. And I said, you know, specifics, <laughs> where, where are you trying to get to? And they said, well, the, the emotion we're most interested in is consideration. And I said, well, I'm not sure that's an emotion, but let's keep talking. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, so funny. I mean, I think, yeah, we're really guilty of that. I mean, we think about emotion in a very, you know, in, in, in ad agencies and then when we're planning comms, we, we tend to reduce it back to, you know, should we make people laugh or should we make them cry? And, um, and, and that, again, is kind of it's so, so super generic. 
Um, and of course, there is value in comedy, and there's value in making people, you know, engaging people emotionally in a way that they feel sort of, you know, very sad and then very happy, as 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 many kind of very emotional pieces of advertising do. But deeper than that, we've got to go. Actually, what is the primarily what is the emotion that we want our brand to engage in people over the long term, and then present that in a funny way or a way that makes people cry or whatever. Um, but yeah, you're right. We should be more emotionally literate and we should be digging deeper than just saying we want to create an emotional connection. Sure. So maybe one last question before we wrap up here. So I, I agree with you earlier that one of the errors that can happen in branding is you know, it's very amorphous and you could also just use it as a shiny wrapper and doesn't really tie to how you're intrinsically running the company. Um, are there other brand building errors that particularly stand out for you? Other brand building errors, did you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mistakes that get made that uh, if only they could be guided yeah. in a better direction would, would make all the difference. Yeah, uh, man, there are, so, there are actually so many. I mean, the, 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 really the, the sort of the prime contender for me tends to be around short-termism. So, um, so, so often, you know, we flip-flop around as brands and we don't stick to, you know, a really consistent message over the long term. What we know from all of the data is that uh, when, we, when we stick to a kind of a platform or a strategy over the long term, that's the effectiveness of that strategy tends to compound, i.e. it gets more and more effective as it goes. So I'll give you some examples. Uh, you know, Snickers, you're not you when you're hungry. That's a strategy that's been running since 2008. Uh, it's, uh, it's been executed like, you know, just dozens and dozens and dozens of different ways all over the world. Uh, and it became, and it just gets more and more effective. Um, Dove's campaign for real beauty started in 2004. Again, it's kind of, it's still going today and still producing amazing results. The John Lewis work for, um, but by Adam and Eve DDB in, in London, their Christmas uh, campaign that they do every year. Again, you know, that just continues to kind of get more and more effective the more that they do it. So I think that's one thing that we are really guilty of as marketers is we we run a brand campaign and then we kind of turn it off and then we go back to the drawing board and then we reinvent the brand completely and we go out with a completely new message um, in this kind of absolutely fallacious belief that um, that that strategies and campaigns wear out, um, which they you know there, there's really very little evidence to support the idea that uh, that good campaigns wear out. Shit campaigns wear out, but they're, they're, they, <laughs> if your creative's not good, no good, it's not going to wear out over a number of months. It's going to be worn out by the time the consumer gets to the end of your commercial. So, uh, yeah. so there's no. But good, but good work, you know, good creative work. It doesn't, it doesn't wear out. It, it can be it can be run for a long long time and so i think that's one thing that as marketers we you know we're really guilty of is we we don't abide by that we kind of chop and change and do something new and you know a marketing director leaves and a new one comes along changes everything and you know that's hugely to the detriment of organizations long-term growth so i think that's something we need to really change yeah no i i love that answer and you know it's kind of jump cut editing version of branding way too often and about mm -hmm. the time that it's resonating with the audience people inside the headquarters building seem to get tired of it or somebody's decided it's time to move on and put their own stamp on things yeah i mean i think that the the idea that i really love the piece of advice i really love is that when you uh, as a marketer are so sick of your campaign that you can you can't even bear to see or hear it anymore that's when the consumer is just starting to get it 
Right? Starting to dial in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just starting to kind of understand it because, you know, you care as a marketer an awful lot about your work and you pay an awful lot of attention to it and it surrounds you. The consumer does not give a fuck frankly they really they have so many better things going on in their lives than your ad and so you know for for them to notice it and to engage with it enough for them to get bored of it takes such a long time years and years and years and so we need to kind of be more (laughs) cognizant of the massive difference between the amount that we engage with our marketing and the amount that the consumer does yeah no absolutely and um yeah candidly stated and and on the on the mark so i want to thank you james uh for being my guest this is dan hill's eq spotlight it's episode 122 keep the rocket in the air my guest james herman he is the author of of future demand, why building your brand among tomorrow's customers is the key to startup success. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I chose one from Lisa Gransky, who said, a brand is a voice and a product is a souvenir. Until next time, take care and be well. 